Well, I, I can never forget when I'm preparing to preach the illustration that my predecessor John used one time of an old sanctuary he was in. And when he got to the pulpit, I might have told you this, there was a plaque that only the preacher could see that said, Sir, we would see Jesus. And it was a reminder about the, to the preacher about what are we proclaiming? Because I don't want to stand up here and tell you some good ideas that I had or things I think might be helpful. I, I want you to see Christ, and I, and I want to proclaim Him. As Paul put it, we preach Christ and Him crucified. But I start with that opening because in this Ephesians passage, for a moment, I'm going to take our eyes off of Jesus and onto His enemy, but I want to come back to Christ, and hopefully by the end of this sermon, you will be encouraged to put on the full armor of God for the battle. Now, right away in this passage, it talks about the enemy. It refers to the devil. It, there are a number of different ways that Satan is named in the scriptures, and right away there's a problem, especially in the educated Western world. Here's the problem. We hear about the devil, and we go one of two extremes in most cases. A lot of us will just go, that is like folklore. That's myth. The devil's like a uh, a, a red guy with little horns. He's a costume. He's not a real person. There's no devil. That's just a way of referring to evil in the world. It's, it's not real. The other side is there are some people who, when they hear about the devil, go, oh yeah, he's real, and he's big, and he's scary, and they see the devil under every pew, under every, everywhere, you know, and, and the devil can be explained uh, or used to explain away their actions, and just, you know, some people make the devil out to be equal on par with God in strength and ability. It's like the, the universe is hanging in a delicate balance, and we're not really sure how it's going to come out for some people. Now, I don't preach, that's called dualism. We don't preach dualism. The scriptures don't uphold that. There are not two equal and opposite powers that are hanging in a balance. God Almighty is the one in power, and Satan is a creature of his who is in rebellion only for a brief period. The scriptures point this out. Now, Paul says very clearly, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness. He's not talking about civil government or human authorities and rulers. He is talking about the spiritual stuff, the heavenlies, that there are two kingdoms that are, in, that are clashing right now, that Christ has come and tied up the strong man and is plundering his house, is how he looks at it. There, he's, he's redeeming back things that were pulled over onto the other side. Now, what I find harder about this passage than to navigate the, is the devil real, is he not, how powerful is he, that sort of thing, what I find much harder is to actually apply the metaphor, to get out of the metaphor of body armor and into realistic, what does this mean for me as a follower of Jesus? And I'll attempt to do that in a minute. Now, the reason I'm in Ephesians 6 today is because this is the last sermon in our series called Belong. And my, the reason I'm here is because to belong to the body of Christ means that you have chosen a side in a two-sided war. You have very clearly aligned with one side, which means you now have an enemy. And I want to ask you this. When you first became a Christian, assuming you have, did anyone tell you you now have an enemy? Whereas before it was unclear, and frankly, the enemy was just fine with you being unsure of which side you're on, because that meant you, if you're not with us, Jesus said, then you're against us. And you were on his side and didn't even know it. But when you decided to follow Jesus, you made a very distinct declaration. You said, Jesus is Lord, and I'm following him. And what that means is his enemy is now your enemy. And so 
the thief, as Jesus calls him, comes only to steal and kill and destroy. And he doesn't fight fair. Why should he? He hates God's people. There is a real war, and when you become a Christian, you now have a real enemy. I don't want to make him out to be too big, but you have a real enemy. And let me step back to an apocalyptic vision to give you kind of a glimpse of what is going on in the heavenlies. Remember, Ephesians started by saying that you are seated in the heavenlies with all these spiritual blessings with Christ, and we're already raised with him in the heavenlies. Now, there's this battle, and in Revelation chapter 12, the apostle John gets a glimpse of what's going on. It's like the sky has been pulled back for a moment, and he could see something that we normally don't see, and he described it this way. A war arose in heaven, and Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon, And the dragon and his angels fought back, but was defeated, and there was no longer any place for them in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent, who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before our God. And they have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. And they love not their lives, even unto death. Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. But woe to you, O earth and sea. For the devil has come down to you in great wrath, because he knows that his time is short. So he is not happy that he's been thrown down. And we have a real enemy, and he wants to do damage. Now, at this point, I don't need to really get too far into what do you think about the devil. We're not questioning whether or not there's evil in our world. It's very obvious that there is. And whether it comes from the sin that is in my own heart, the sin that is in the whole system and, and the, the different societies, or, this, or it's coming from Satan, it doesn't really matter there are, there's evil in the world, and how do we deal with that? That's the question. How do we deal with it? What, what are we going to do? Um, somebody very wise last century put it this way. He said, there is no neutral ground in the universe. Every square inch, every single minute is claimed by God and counterclaimed by the devil. And so belonging to the body of Christ means we are changing sides in a fierce battle. And what we don't want to do is go out into a battlefield in our pajamas. We want the full equipment that we need to be able to survive and even to thrive. Now, the devil, as I said, and as we heard, has been defeated, but he still has some power. And my, my late grandfather, who was prone to embellishment and a fan of the outdoors, would say to us grandkids, if you ever find a dead rattlesnake... I don't know how often that would happen, but if you ever find a dead rattlesnake, don't bend down and try and take that rattle off the back, because that snake is still connected, and that head will whip around and bite you. It might be dead, but there's still venom in it. If you want that tail, you better cut that head off first. We didn't find any rattlesnakes, so I don't have a tail to this day. But the point is that the dead snake still has venom in it. Or maybe a better illustration might be from in a military town from uh, the end of the big war, where there was D-Day and V-Day. The war was won on D-Day, but a lot of skirmishes still happened, a lot of casualties, a lot of damage that happened after the decisive battle until it was finally done. And so we're in that moment where the decisive battle has happened, and Jesus said it is finished on that cross. But 
His enemy is still doing damage to people, and we're, we're, we get duped. He's the father of lies, and we, we don't recognize his schemes. And so Paul says here, don't let that happen. Be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. So I want to ask you, are you fully dressed? Are you, are you wearing the armor that God has given you if you are a Christian? Now, what he does, what Paul does, is he gives us six different pieces of equipment. And I found it, as I was studying this week, a little bit easier to remember those pieces of equipment because three of them you wear and three of them you take up. So he, is, he says, put on, and you put on a belt, you put on a, a, a breastplate, and you put on shoes. And then you carry a shield, a sword, and you carry your helmet. It's you know, hot and heavy and uncomfortable. So until the actual battle, you just carry the helmet, and then you put it on. So he says, he starts off with how you would get dressed if you knew there was going to be a battle. And the first thing he says is to put on the belt of truth. Now, the breastplate covered your heart and your lungs, but your gut needed to be covered, and that's what the belt did. So don't think a belt like ours that would hold up our pants. Think like WWF wrestling, or I've seen some guys down here in the south that have some belt buckles that would warrant actual protection from a, from a spear, but think gut protection, right? And what Jesus said is, it's not what goes into a man that makes him unclean, it's what comes out of him. For out of the overflow, the abundance, a person will speak. So what we are supposed to do is put the belt of truth on. Well, Jesus says, I am the truth. And he says, you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. And what I'm talking about here by putting this belt of truth on is to no longer need to lie. We simply come as honest, broken people before God, and we say, Lord, here's where I need help. And so what happens in a battle where we've got the father of lies, a deceiver, coming to us and trying to get us to fall, is we come in honesty and go, Lord, here's where I am. So the deceiver's trying to say stuff to me, and I'm going, I've already confessed that to God, and God and I are working that out. I'm living in the light as Jesus is in the light. I'm not hiding in the darkness anymore. I've got the belt of truth on. I'm honest. I'm open. I'm not afraid to come before the Lord. I've been girded in honesty. I let my yes be yes and my no be no. I don't have to lie anymore. I'm forgiven. So here's the question that I want to ask. I'm going to ask a question after each one of these pieces of equipment. Am I lying to myself or to God about anything? If I am, I'm leaving a foothold for the enemy, the father of lies. He can't read your mind, but he can give ideas. He says things, and and we start to buy into these things. We hear things, and they begin to affect us. Am I allowing myself to be deceived or even deceiving myself, or am I walking in complete in in the light and integrity with God. The second piece of equipment to put on is the breastplate. As I've mentioned, it protects the lungs and the heart. It's on the front and the back and kind of hangs over the shoulders, a big heavy thing. And Paul calls it the breastplate of righteousness. Now, in good theology, there is a great exchange that happens. We just sang from Corinthians, he became sin who knew no sin that we might become the righteousness of God. That's the great exchange that our sin was taken by Christ to that cross, and in place of our sin, we were given his righteousness. We didn't earn it. It was simply imputed to us. It's a big theological word. It wasn't something we worked for. God said, I look at you now, and if you're in Christ, I see Christ's righteousness. Therefore, we, we are clothed in his righteousness. And remember in that war in heaven, the accuser of the brothers, meaning the brothers and sisters in Christ, the accuser goes night and day before the throne, 
pointing his finger and he's going, you are not worthy. You are not, you're a sinner. You're no good. And, you, and he's pointing his finger and accusing. And when you have the righteousness of Christ on, you go, you're right. I am. All those things you say about me are true. But I've already taken them to the Lord and he has forgiven me. And now I'm, in, I'm standing in Christ's righteousness. So get away from me, Satan. And, and what can he accuse at that point? It's just blatantly honest. Yes, all those things you're using to shame me, I've owned them, I've taken them to God, and I'm forgiven for them. I'm now righteous in Christ. Be gone. That's how you stand in that battle. That's what that looks like. You are simultaneously justified and a sinner. And there's a great mystery in how that works out. But the truth of the matter is, we no longer have to suffer shame at the enemy's accusations. So here's my question. Do I delight in being a sinner saved by grace? Or am I still working to look better than I really am? Am I still trying to earn something with God? Am I trying to clean up and present myself better so that God will accept me? Because that's not the message of grace. That's works. So are you, are you willing to own the fact that you are a broken sinner? Like I am a broken sinner, but one who's been saved by grace. And by grace, God is putting me back together. He is making me into Christ's image. The next thing is to wear the shoes of readiness with the gospel of peace. Notice it's the gospel of peace. So just because we're using a, an armor metaphor here does not mean we're supposed to go on some crusade and use violence to advance God's kingdom. I also want to point something else out before I explain this one. We are called to stand in this part. Throughout the first five chapters, he said, walk. You walk. Walk in a worthy manner of your calling. Now he says, stand. So we've got shoes on, but we're not supposed to go running into battle. It's the gospel of peace, not war. The shoes are the readiness of the gospel of peace. So, of course, you read that and you go, I can figure that one out. I'm supposed to tell people about Jesus. Sure, absolutely. Witnessing is a part of that. But it's far greater than that. It's far more comprehensive. It's more about how do I make the best use of the time given to me? I now belong to the kingdom of light instead of darkness. How do I help that kingdom break in everywhere? So what does it look like for me to be a Christian businessman, a Christian teacher, a Christian um, hobbyist? even into your recreation? What does it look like for the gospel to come into those areas? How do we walk wisely in this world and make the best use of the time? Knowing how the good news applies everywhere. Here's my question. Do I regularly bring Christ into all spheres of my life? Or do I kind of tuck him away in certain areas because I haven't thought through how the gospel might affect those relationships and that dynamic? Or I'm ashamed maybe. I'll talk about God in church. I'll talk about God in my small group, but then I get to work, and everybody else seems to be irreligious or even antagonistic, and so I quietly don't have the readiness of the gospel of peace on my feet, and so I'm afraid. Do I regularly bring Christ into all spheres of my life? Four, now we're taking stuff up. So those first three, you put on a belt, you put on the breastplate, and you put on the shoes, but now he says take up, and you take up three things. The first thing that you take up is the shield of faith. And this shield is one of these big ones that goes all the way from the head to the ground so you could really hide behind this thing. It would totally cover you. The shield of faith. And faith and faithfulness have been divorced in our, our language today. 
And there's only one word in Greek for those two words. Sometimes it's faith, sometimes it's translated faithfulness, it's the same thing. But what we've done is we've made faith about intellectual assent, and we've made faithfulness about the action that comes and proceeds forth from that, from that thinking. And, and so the shield of faith means living a life that lines up with what you believe. Take up the shield of faith means live what you profess. Be a person who is walking in faith. You see, the scripture says that the demons believe in God and they tremble. They believe, he, or they know he's real and they know his power. They were cast down, they're eternal souls, and they, but they don't submit to his lordship. They're in open rebellion. So even the demons believe and tremble. So to just believe that God exists doesn't help you. But believe and then submit to his lordship and begin to walk in faith. That's to take up the shield of faith. It's to move from faith to faithfulness. Remembering who you are and whose you are. You belong to that kingdom. Now live as such. So here's the question that I ask. How obviously do my actions spring forth from my beliefs? Or am I a walking dichotomy? I say one thing and I do another thing. My, I, I've dropped the shield of faith. I don't live like what I say I believe. How obviously do my actions spring forth from what I believe? The next thing we put on is the helmet of salvation. And Christian salvation is as sure and certain as God's character. We can be assured of salvation not because of anything that we do or any worth that we inherently have. We can be assured because when we are faithless, he is faithful. As Romans 8 says, there is nothing in all of creation that can separate you from the love of God that is in Christ. There's nothing that can do that. He says, speaking of the good shepherd in whose hand you are a sheep, there is no one, nothing that can snatch you out of my hand, he says. Elsewhere, he says, I will carry on to completion the good work I began in you. All of these are about the assurance of salvation, that we can be confident that we will attain the hope that we have, that we will be with God in glory, that we are saved and will be saved. So Satan will attack your security and your sense of security. He goes right for identity. He gets you to doubt. He gets questioned. I mean, think about in the garden. Oh, did God say you can't eat from that tree? You know, and he starts to use half-truths and starts to shake things up. As the saying goes, a half-truth a half is like a half a brick. You can throw it further and it does more damage. Think about that. Satan will take half of a truth and then he will twist it. That's why he's called the father of lies. So Jesus is tempted in the wilderness. And you know how Jesus was tempted? Satan came to him three times and attacked his security. Oh, if you are the son of God. Remember, he had just been baptized and God said, you are my beloved son, with you I'm well pleased. Oh, if you are the son of God, say to this stone, become bread. If you are the son of God, do such and such. If, he's starting to question identity. And what he will do to you is he will say, oh, you're not really saved. I, you, no. You keep falling out of God's good graces. You're not working hard enough. Not you. Others will get in, but you're not good enough. That's what the accuser will do, and he will, get, he will start to erode and undermine your sense of trust in God. Your, your salvation is secure, not because of your faith, but because of God's faithfulness. So you just trust in him and look to him. And, and over-concern with whether I'm going to make it or not is really self-centeredness. We need to get away from that and focus on him. That's how we put on the helmet of salvation. I got to look to God. He's trustworthy. He'll carry this through. So here's my question. How confident am I that in Christ I'm eternally secure? 
How confident am I that in Christ I'm eternally secure? And now here's the last thing. So the last thing is to take up the sword of the Spirit. And being someone who's a little bit more prone to action than contemplation, when I came across this and, um, and we were discussing this in one of my seminary classes, I went, sweet, here's the sword. I'm going to grab the sword with my ready shoes and I'm going to run out and do something. And I said, well, professor, you know, here we have a sword, which is meant for, you know, and, and then he goes, well, actually, if you read your Greek, the Greek word for that sword isn't big sword, it's little dagger. It's, it's the personal piece of equipment that you would keep only if your big sword was gone and you got into a very close confrontation. You would never pull the little dagger out and run charging out to try to attack something. Again, it's stand, not confront. It's stand in the day of attack, in the day of evil. And so we've, he says, take up, though, the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. So the Word of the Gospel. And this is a little bit weird because it, it's the sword of the Spirit, but it is the Word of God. And so the Spirit empowers the effectiveness of the Word of God. And if you've taken up this, this sword, that means that your theology is sorted. You know what the Gospel of Peace is. You know the message. I like Eugene Peterson's title for his paraphrase of the Bible. He called it The Message, which is his way of, of using the, the word the gospel, which we use a lot. But it is the message of truth. And I wonder, is my theology grounded? Or am I like that person who's just tossed about on the waves like a boat in the wind and I'm not tied to anything? I'm not founded. I'm not, my life is not, t- is not built on the rock, which is Jesus. We make a big deal out, about, out of that here at the church by teaching the foundations course, which is just basics. It's foundational. And yet many of us don't have those foundational teachings sorted. Our theology is way out of line, and, and we, it's not lining up with the scriptures. So we, we're without a sword. So we don't know what to do when someone with a really strong and aggressive rhetoric comes at us, and they sound like they really know what they're talking about. What do we do? We start getting confused and tossed about. We don't have the sword of the Spirit. We don't have that gospel. We don't know what we think, what we believe. So here's my question. Is my theology grounded in the truth? Do I know what the good news is? Could I articulate the gospel? That's a question worth reflecting on. Now here in summary, Jesus is all of these things. And to be connected to Jesus is to have help in all the areas. Jesus himself is the truth. He is righteousness. He is the good news. He is faithful. He is the Savior. And he is the Word of God, capital W. He is the Word. So what we need to do is look to him, and then we need to look at all six of these things and start putting those on so that we can stand and withstand the attacks, whether they come from our own sinfulness or the world or the devil. It really doesn't matter where it comes from. Evil is coming. It's all around us. We, if we belong to Christ, are on his side, which means we have an enemy, and we need to put on the full armor of God. So let's now go to the Lord in prayer and ask him to help us with that. Father, I thank you that you have not left us helpless, but that you, by your Spirit, come to us, that you empower us, I thank you that you have given us these things. Oh, Lord, give us the courage to really examine and see if we've received your gifts and are walking in them. Lord, we pray for strength when temptation comes. We pray for the ability to resist the devil. We pray that you would help us, Lord. Thank you for the 
membership that we have in your body. Thank you for the hope that we have and that we are more than conquerors in Christ. Now help us to be strong in this life until the day when in glory we get to be with you. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.